Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to the podcast where we're doing our New Testament overview. We are working through Paul's letters to individuals now, and we talked about Titus last week, one of the evangelists who is also working with Paul. And this week we turn our attention to Timothy. And we are going to split this into two parts and do the first letter to Timothy in this episode. And then next week, Lord willing, look at 2 Timothy. But uh, we know a lot more about Timothy than we know about Titus. He comes up a whole lot more in the New Testament. Um, kind of interesting, just starting out, setting the background here, uh, to see when Paul picks up Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Mm-hmm. Paul is uh, working on his second trip. And it's possible that Paul met Timothy on his first trip uh, there at, at uh, Lystra. Um, Iconium or Lystra uh, is generally where Timothy is from. And it's possible that Timothy saw... Paul stoned at Lystra uh, and left for dead and then continue on to Derby and make his way back through there. But on the second journey, uh, Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra and Acts 16 verse 1, it says a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, We don't know exactly how old Timothy was when Paul took him. Some speculate, you know, he may have been as young as a teenager at this time. But it would have taken a lot of guts to follow Paul, Mm -hmm. who would have had some scars on him at this point. Whether or not Timothy had seen the stoning happen or not, he would have been like, what's going to happen? He, he very much so would have been familiar with what Paul had been through, though. I mean, that was at the center of, of a lot of Paul's preachings. I mean, the last time he was there in Lystra, Iconium area, one of the things he said to the disciples was, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Timothy was well aware of the reality of teaching and preaching the gospel, that it, it really is a dangerous job. Um, mm-hmm. It's risky. And you're right, it, it is very impressive that Timothy... A, would be willing to go, but, but secondly, that even as a young man, he has a character that the people were speaking highly about him. And I just feel like you don't hear that as much anymore. Uh, you know, it's encouraging to, to read about that, that there was a young man that had integrity and that the congregation, the church knew that about them. And so if there's any young people listening to this, this is a, a cool thing to, to want to be, to, to be someone that has inter- integrity like Timothy did. The other detail that's given here, it's mentioned twice in the text, which is why I think it's so significant, is that it mentions that his father was a Greek. And that's directly contrasted with his mom being a Jewish woman who was a believer. And so I believe the idea is, is his mom was a Christian, but his father was not. And that would have been tricky for Timothy. And for those of you listening or or others that know what that's like to grow up in a household where there's kind of a split religious uh, divide in the family, that's really hard. And especially when it's your dad, you know, and you're a young man, and you're, you're trying to be a Christian, but your, your dad isn't uh, an example for you to look to, that would be hard. But 
Timothy defies the odds. He is a believer. He is a disciple of Jesus. And Paul sees that in him and sees in him an evangelist, someone that can go out and do this work. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be some of the background behind what Paul is going to call Timothy in both of these letters, where he calls him to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Yes. Um, Even though Timothy's earthly father was not a good example from what we can tell uh, for him, Paul there's a sense in which Paul adopts him yes, and is that father figure for him um, in, in many ways. So that, I think it's really cool to see that. So Timothy is picked up there in Acts 16. He comes up a lot more. He travels with Paul uh, for a lot of the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, and he comes up in six of the New Testament letters uh, that are kind of co-sent. Uh, Paul is writing, but Timothy's co-sending the letter with Paul. Um. And he comes up to the end of the book of Hebrews uh, as being in prison. Uh, so we know that he suffered like Paul suffered. Um, and so it's interesting just to think about their relationship and the influence that Paul would have had on this young man, Timothy. What we're going to see in First Timothy is Timothy may be as old as 40 by the time this letter is written. Again, lots of speculation on that. But it's in this letter that Paul's going to say to him, let no one look down on your youth. They yes. defined youth a lot differently than we do. Um, But it's powerful to think about Paul toward the end of his life. He's now writing to Titus. Uh, We we introduced the idea um, last week in our introduction to Titus about this possible fourth journey that Paul takes. Um, It looks like that might be the case for 1 Timothy as well because of some of the events referenced in the letter that might not fit into the book of Acts. Uh, So generally, people take... Uh, after the book of Acts is written and Paul is in house arrest in Rome, that he's released. And then during this in-between imprisonments, he writes Titus and he writes 1 Timothy. And then we'll see when we get to 2 Timothy that he's in prison again and that he's about to die. Um, that's the language in 2 Timothy 4. And so uh, that's a possibility for when this letter was written. Um, and I think it is cool to think about Paul. Again, he's getting close to the end of his life, even in First Timothy, but is equipping Timothy mm-hmm. to keep doing the work after Paul moves on. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, a cool perspective for this letter. And uh, like we've already mentioned, Timothy had quite a bit of weight when it came to just being an evangelist, uh, a lot of respect amongst the churches. He is a co-sender of six of the letters that Paul will send out but uh, he's also somebody that suffers for the sake of Christ. And we learn that at the end of the book of Hebrews. Um, as the writer's wrapping that book up, he'll say, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. And so at some point, Timothy had been arrested uh, for the sake of Christ would be our assumption. And so Timothy is truly a servant. And you would have to be um, to, to be in a place where he is. Uh, he's in Ephesus. It's a at this point the congregation is likely pretty large. Uh, if this these events and they likely do occur after um, the book of Acts or at least after the second and third preaching trip, um, we know that the church in Ephesus had elders and that they had shepherds in that church. And so I would imagine that there was quite a few men there and different types of people there. And that's where Timothy is sent to labor for a while. And so what's cool is, as we read First Timothy, you in some ways, 
you learn more about what the church in Ephesus is and was about here more than you do even in the letter to the Ephesians because Paul is writing to the evangelist about what he needs to preach on because of the different problems in mm-hmm. Ephesus. And so it's kind of cool to see it through those lenses. Yeah. So the the letter itself, uh, six chapters, and it doesn't have as rigid of an outline as some of the other letters. There's going to be three sections at the beginning of chapters one, four, and six where Paul really addresses false teaching. That's going to be one of the big things that he's asking Timothy to do at Ephesus is to rebuke these false teachers, to put these things before the brethren, to tell them, hey, listen to what I'm telling you. Like, watch out for this false teaching. Um, And in between those sections in chapters 2 and 3, and then later in chapter 5, there's addresses to different individuals within the congregation. Chapters 2 and 3, he'll address men and women. Then he'll talk about overseers and deacons or servants. And then in chapter 5, he'll address widows and elders. And then he will address servants as well at the beginning of chapter 6. Kind of goes with that section. So that's kind of a general overview. Um, But kind of walking through the letter, uh, Paul jumps jumps in pretty quick uh, to... uh, to, Timothy, to what he's saying to Timothy, apparently there were some urgent things going on in Ephesus. And so after the traditional greeting section, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There's not like a big Thanksgiving section or anything. He just jumps straight in. Like, hey, you need to make sure to watch out for these false teachers. And it's hard to know exactly what was going on. We'll see some kind of reading in between the lines, things that there may have been some Judaizing teachers going on. There may have been some Gnosticism. We'll, we'll see at the very end of First Timothy yeah. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Mm -hmm. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's almost clearly a a reference to Gnosticism, which is where we get our word knowledge from. Um, So some of that was going on. Even without knowing the details, though, we can see the principles that Timothy needs to watch out for. And here he talks about people who are devoted to myths and endless genealogies, who desire to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're talking about. But I really like 1 Timothy 1.5, kind of in the middle of this. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. One of the big things that Paul's going to do as he's charging Timothy to avoid false teaching is to also present the right teaching yes. and say, don't do that, but rather do this. Yes. And love is the goal of the instruction that he's giving to Timothy and that Timothy needs to give to the Christians in Ephesus. And it kind of is cool because as Paul exposes the false teaching for what it is, he uses it as a teaching opportunity for Timothy to learn what kind of teacher he should be. And so you see Paul's multiple purposes there as he's addressing the false teaching. And so... Uh, One of the other things that's really noteworthy here in chapter 1 is Paul's way of talking about Jesus, but also talking about who he is 
in terms of what Jesus has done. And so this is a very famous section where Paul will write that uh, he, in verse um, 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. And it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So Paul, this is on the tale of him talking about unrighteous people in all kinds of horrible situations. Paul is writing and saying that no matter what those situations are, Jesus came and saved you. And if they don't believe you about that, you use me as an example. Paul is the foremost of sinners, as he was this persecutor of the Lord's church, and yet was redeemed and forgiven by Jesus himself. And so you see this pause of uh, where Paul is is really praying and thanking Jesus for this, uh, for this fact that he has been saved. Mm-hmm. And so that serves as a good example for not only Timothy, but also to those he might be teaching, whether it be false teachers or those who have fallen victim to the false teaching. Yeah, that's right. And so from there, it's kind of interesting that in chapter 2 he says, first of all then, yes. <laughs> he's already covered a good bit of ground. Yes. But uh, he then kind of turns his attention from the false teachers to what Timothy ought to be instructing the disciples about there in the congregation, Ephesus. And he talks first about prayer. I think that's notable that of all the different topics he could get to, he says, I, I, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, and that we, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Uh, Prayer is so vital to the life of a local congregation, to the formation of disciples, and he begins by saying, hey, you need to be praying. And he'll talk some more about that, but then he comes around to verse 8 and directs the men in particular. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, and so this is something in particular that the men needed to be devoted to, focused on. And then he addresses the women at the latter part of chapter 2. Um, apparently there were some issues going on there within the disciples that uh, some of them, in the way that they were dressing, were dressing in a way to uh, you know, draw attention to their rich clothes. Um, and he said, no, you can't do that. You need to dress modestly, you know, not drawing attention to yourself, but rather uh, to good works. And apparently there were also some issues happening with questions of authority, questions of what should women be doing in the assembly. And Paul says, no, there need to be the men leading and the women are to be quiet um, in the assembly. And uh, and he goes back to creation yes. for some of these things. That's this important was to see. not a cultural thing as much as it was a creation thing. Yes. And so he comes back to the principles with which God created the world when he supports these things. And we can get a much larger discussion on the role of men and women in the New Testament. But this is one of those passages where Paul very clearly lays out, you know, 
women don't need to be taking the speaking roles in the assembly. And there's biblical reason for that. Uh, this is the way God created things. Yes. And this principle, if we can just pause on it for just a second, is important to see from the perspective that Paul and Jesus had a very high view of what Genesis taught about man and woman. Jesus did the same thing when he was questioned about marriage, but specifically divorce, in Matthew, the 19th chapter. And his answer was bringing them back to what God's initial statement was about marriage, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And Jesus will say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And here, Paul is also taking from what was foundational in Genesis and applying those principles even into the New Testament church. And so there's a few things we need to take away from that. Number one, Genesis is not just history, it's real. Uh, it's, it's, it's not allegory, but it's real people that had real principles that God wanted us to learn. But secondly, we need to be willing to submit to some of these passages, even if they're hard to grapple with, and even if they hurt our pride, there are things we need to work through. We do not get to just simply look at them and say, well, that was just cultural. Well, the surrounding context uh, doesn't, to me, sound like it's cultural, but it sounds like it's Paul commanding, and so we need to take that seriously. Mm -hmm. So this section is good to meditate about, and and it's a section that if you have more questions about, Stephen will give the contact info at the end of the podcast. We'd love to talk more about that. I thought you were about to say, if you have more questions about it, Stephen will be happy to answer your questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, thanks, Chase. But we realize that this is not a popular teaching, but it's something we have to deal with. Um, And it's, it's in the Word of God, so it needs to be discussed. Amen. And so from the men and women discussion, it kind of gives way to this discussion of other uh, particular roles within the church of overseers and deacons or servants. And this is a famous section of scripture where Paul gives the qualities that these kind of leadership positions are to have. Uh, we do see that both these are to be men, um, uh, that they're to be the husband of one wife, again, kind of going back to what we just said about mm-hmm. leadership roles. Now, I will say that the wives of the deacons are addressed in chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, we can get to a lot more detail on that in another study. But that Timothy is to help the church in Ephesus by making sure that it has the proper leaders and servants that it needs to have. And so he's tasked with appointing elders, uh, like Titus was, we talked about last week, on Crete, yeah. the island of Crete. Uh, Timothy is to be helping with the elders at Ephesus. And it's kind of interesting that we know that the church at Ephesus had elders because Paul met with them back in Acts chapter 20. That's right. And so this would be very lightly uh, after uh, these things, but maybe he's appointing more elders. Um, But still they need to have this quality that leadership within the body of Christ is not based on worldly credentials. It's not based on their level of education. Um, It is based on their character. Yes. And that's so important to see is that these men are measured not by, you know, some other worldly metric, but by are they looking more and more like Jesus? Because almost all of these things are things that every Christian should have. Oh, absolutely. But in particular, it's required for people who are put before the body of believers as leaders. They need to be embody and be living the gospel in a particular way um, that is uh, set apart. Yes. And like you said, I appreciate you mentioning that. It looks like in Titus, Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you can you know, appoint these elders. Uh, it looks like in Crete there were no elders in some of the churches, and Titus is called upon to appoint elders, where Timothy very well might be adding to the elderships there. 
um, in Ephesus. The other thing that's just worth thinking about is that this word for overseer can get a little confusing in our in our Bibles because there's three Greek words that refer to this office, if, if you will. But we have six English words to try and describe what that word is that are used various times in the New Testament. One of those words is the word pastor. And that word gets used a lot in religious circles, sometimes in the right way, sometimes in the wrong ways. But it is helpful to see that this overseer that's being described is the same role of a pastor in the New Testament. And so um, when churches have a pastor, it's important to ask, does he meet these qualities? Is, is this a biblical pastor in, in that sense? So just for what it's worth, something to think about. Yes, and biblically, uh, to say this as we're talking about this, Chase and I are not pastors <laughs> or overseers. Uh, we are evangelists like Timothy was. And um, it's just interesting to see, uh, again, how these words have kind of taken on a, their own role, but we're trying to do our best to stick with the word Amen. and to say it, say it the way the scriptures say it. So after the qualifications for overseers or elders or pastors, um, you have the qualifications for deacons. And, and then again, with translation, it might have been easier if they just translated it as servant, because yeah. this is the very common word for servant throughout yes. the New Testament. This is one of those transliterated words where they took the Greek word uh, diakonos and they just made all the English equivalent letters fall down under it. And so they're like, deacon. Right. It's like, well, that's you can do that, but it doesn't define what it means. Uh, right. What it means is servant. This is the same word in a different form in Acts 6 when they appointed servants to help with the distribution of food to the widows that were being overlooked. And Yeah, same thing with baptism. It would be a lot easier if it had been translated instead of transliterated. Exactly. Um, but what we see here is that certainly all Christians are to be servants, but these servants seem to have a particular role. Again, there's qualifications given for them here of uh, excellent character. They're slightly different than the qualities given for the elders. Um, this is the only place in the New Testament that we have the qualities given for this particular role. Mm-hmm. And I think it's notable to, say, to see that the, if these are servants, this isn't actually an authority role in the church. It is someone who is a servant. It's someone who is over a task or over a, you know, a job that needs to be done. Um, but they're not actually shepherding people, which mm-hmm. I, I do like the idea of, uh, of the titles for pastor. I like the word shepherd because the idea is they're, over, they're taking care of the sheep. They're mm-hmm. taking care of the flock, the people of God's fold, uh, whereas a servant is taking care of uh, a task, uh, something to be done. And uh, Acts 6 is a great place to look at that, even though the noun servant is not used or deacon is not used in that text i think you see the principle of what's happening yes. here um there in uh, that chapter so ephesus would be well served by these men uh, both the ones serving as overseers and the ones serving as servants or deacons and i think it's kind of cool at the end of first timothy 3 that there's this little poem it's kind of like right in the middle of the letter and again paul ties in all of this with the gospel that we're seeking to serve like Jesus. And he says in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And there's this little poem. Mm-hmm. He, as Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So right at the heart of this letter, Paul, first he tells him why he's writing, which is always helpful when he says, hey, I'm writing to you for this reason, so that one might know how to behave in the household or the family of God. And a lot of what Timothy's writing in this letter is, hey, here's the different roles in the church. Here's how you ought to behave in God's family, in God's household. Mm -hmm. But it's cool to see here that he talks about Jesus' humiliation and glorification, uh, coming in the flesh, taking on human form. This is a little bit like the poem in Philippians 2 that we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, But then being taken up in glory, proclaimed among the nations, that you, you see the humiliation and glorification of Jesus, that he was a servant. And so all of this ties into men and women serving in the ways yeah. that they serve, shepherds and servants serving in the way that they serve. And so the gospel message, like Paul went into in chapter 1, Christ Jesus came to save sinners like me, show, to show mercy, um, is at the heart of all of this. Yeah, Stephen, I don't think I had seen that in context before. That's really helpful to see. Um, we're all trying to serve the same way that Christ did, and he's the ultimate example. That's that's cool. Uh, so in chapter 4, it's sprinkled throughout the letter, like Stephen was talking about earlier, are the encouragements to stay away from false teaching and false doctrines. And chapter 4, 1 through 5 is another section like that where Paul points out that the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And so uh, Paul is warning Timothy that there are going to be some who fall away from the Lord, and it's a direct result of the kind of teaching that they're hearing, that there are false teachers out there who are deceiving them. And so that would obviously make Timothy's ears perk up. If that's going to happen, then I need to be on the lookout for this false teaching, but I also need to be teaching what's right and what's true. And so you'll see some more uh, encouragements from Paul about false teaching uh, a little bit later as well. Yeah. What's kind of interesting about this false teaching is it seems like there's a lot of false teaching that's encouraging people to do things that God has said are wrong, But this particular false teaching was forbidding people from doing things that God said are good, like forbidding marriage and forbidding certain kinds of foods. So so there may have been some, again, some like Jewish background, some of these things. But it's interesting that false teaching takes a lot of different kinds, takes a lot of different forms. Uh, And some of it is, again, encouraging people to do wrong. But there's other false teaching that's discouraging people from doing right. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of this. So the rest of chapter 4 is Paul really just sitting down with Timothy? Again, after each of these sections on false teachers, he kind of talks to Timothy and is like, all right, I charge you to do this. And here he really gives him some of the best personal advice that a young evangelist could receive. Um, that He needs to avoid you know, ridiculous things, irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Uh, discipline yourself. And command and teach these things. And this is the famous verse in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in purity. Um, Timothy may have been young by, by their standards, but he was to not let people look down on him for that. Not in the sense that he could control what they thought, but that by his example... 
he shouldn't be living in a way that would be easy for people to despise him. Live in a way that people are like, no, like, Timothy's young, but man, he's a good example for all of us. Um, that's the kind of life that Paul was charging Timothy to live, not just to teach the right things, but to live as an example. And that's a much higher calling than just knowing the right things to say in a pulpit or something, but you need to live it out yes. so that people can see the gospel, not just from your lips, but in your life. Yes, and that's echoed in verse 16. Yeah, Pay, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Uh, uh, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so there's a level of, of his private living that will then influence the public nature of his role as an evangelist as he's delivering lessons, which is why I think in verse 13 it was appropriate for Paul to say, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Yes, Timothy needs to apply these things privately, but he needs to be talking about them publicly and giving much attention to what the Scripture has to say in reading it. And it is cool to think about what Scripture would have been for Timothy. Certainly the Old Testament would have been Scripture for Timothy at this point. But it's also cool to think about what letters had been circulated at that point, or possibly what parts of the gospel uh, did Timothy have a hold of that he was sharing uh, whenever he's giving public uh, readings. And so Timothy uh, is to have this good balance between applying these things to himself, but also adequately explaining these things to the brethren and holding them to the same standard that he's holding himself to. Yeah, amen. So this gives way to another section in chapter 5 that is addressing like roles within the church. And a lot of this chapter is going to be devoted to apparently something that was going on at Ephesus where they had these needy widows. And there's going to be a lot of specific instruction given to them about, okay, like these are the ones that the church needs to help. If they have family, the family needs to help them first. And there's some you know qualifications given here for the widows that are um, to... Uh, be fully supported by the by the church there. And then at the end of chapter 5, he talks about elders again and gives Timothy some more warnings here to be careful about uh, not being too quick to appoint them. I think that's what he means by the laying on of hands. He also points out that elders are worthy of monetary support um, in this section. But then talks about, I think it's interesting in verse 24 and 25, he says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. That Timothy needs to be very careful and slow about appointing these men, because you don't always know someone's character until you've really been around them for a while. And so you need to take your time. Don't be too hasty in doing this. And this is really good advice for a young man working with a congregation uh, to be slow about being a judge of character, uh, both bad and good. He says, you know, like sometimes you can't tell that someone's bad at the beginning, but also sometimes you learn that someone's better than you thought they were. Uh, and their good works, as their good works come out, um, perhaps something you didn't know about. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, he also addresses servants, a brief section here telling them to to be submissive uh, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Uh, I think it's really interesting um, to see that the way that we conduct ourselves as men, as women, if we're serving as a shepherd or a servant, um, or, you know, masters and servants in that relationship during those times, 
all of these reflect back on the teaching. Uh, this is something we pointed out in Titus, adorning the doctrine in, what is it, Titus 2.10. Um, so it's really helpful to see that, like, Timothy is to teach these brethren to behave within God's household mm-hmm. in a way that people will see Christian behavior and say, wow, that's, that's valuable teaching. This is really changing people in some good ways. And how much more motivation for us to, to live this out now in a culture that is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun and very corrupt, and uh, we need to be lights in the world. Yes. And in this next section, I'll tell you what, when we think about false teaching, I think we sometimes have too soft a view on it. Uh, we're, we're, we want to be really slow before we label something a false teaching or someone a false teacher. And especially in our culture, I think because there's so much divisiveness outside of churches, we inwardly want to look at all the other churches and say, "Well, we're all in this together, and you know, we're we're all worshiping the same God." And so, you know, what what's really does it matter what you believe about this or that? Well, we need to be careful. And the reason I know we need to be careful is because of what Paul's about to say to Timothy here in First Timothy six and verse three. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul's pretty clear here as to what he thinks about false teachers and false teaching. You have to stay away from it. And what he really defines false teaching as in verse 3 are those that do not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. If someone is advocating for something that is the opposite of what Jesus taught, which was godliness according to the end of verse 3, conforming to godliness, we have to deal with that. We have to call them out for that. We we cannot sweep that under the rug and, and try to make it look like something that it's not, but it needs to be called out. And so there is a sense of conviction here that Paul is talking about that Timothy can have with false teachers and with false teaching that I believe we can adopt as well in a healthy way, um, not in a I'm better than you way, but this is what the truth is and we need to hold hold to it and hold fast to it. And so I think seeing this strict and straightforward language from Paul is a good thing for us to see, that we there are things we can stand up for if Jesus himself did. Yeah, amen. And it's interesting to see as well that apparently these false teachers were in it for the money. And he pivots from this discussion of false teachers into a discussion on contentment. And it follows, that we just mentioned at the end of chapter 5, that he said, well, these elders are worthy of monetary compensation. And so when money gets involved, there's always the opportunity for greed and discontentment. And so even though he says, yes, if they're serving well as elders, they're worthy of support, he turns right around and says, but be careful because there's people who are false teachers who are in it for the money. And Christians need to be people who are content with what they have. Uh, Again, there's some famous quotes that come from Uh, This section, he says uh, in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, 
with these we will be content. Amen. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's interesting to see how the exhortations about money and the exhortations about false teaching are kind of blended together here because that was one of the motivations for teaching things that people wanted to hear so they get money. We never see that happening today, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, very obvious, timeless truths here about the danger of preaching for, for monetary gain and tickling people's ears. Um, so in contrast to all of this, he says, you be content you be satisfied with what the Lord gives you to take care of you. And then he turns to some final exhortations in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and following. He calls them to fight the good fight. You know, there's a lot of fights we can get into. They're not <laughs> good fights. Uh, they're harmful. They're painful. But there is a fight that is the good fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we need to be disciplining ourselves and acting as a soldier. You know, we talked about the spiritual armor in Ephesians yes. 6. This is, that's equipment for the good fight. Yeah. Um, and Timothy is encouraged as a young man with energy and desire to go and do. To, you put your energy in the right place. Right. And don't get led off into these ridiculous fights. You fight the good one. And it's a fight that many before Timothy have fought. Ultimately, it's a fight that Jesus fought, which is his point in verse 13. As Paul charges him again in the presence of God, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a sense in which Jesus fought this fight in his confession before Pontius Pilate. And I think what this is talking about is Jesus having never backed down that he is the king of the Jews and that he is the anointed one, that he is the Christ. Jesus confessed that. And this word that's used in New American Standard and ESV for confession, some of the older Bibles, like the KJV, use the word profession, which is really the idea. And it's not like profession, like in professional, but profession. It is a good confession. It is a a loud standing up, I believe this. And that's what Jesus did, and that's ultimately what got Jesus killed. But he stood up for it. Despite all the persecution and despite all the horrible things that came his way for it, Jesus stood up for it. Can you hear how that should echo to to Timothy? As he might face ridicule and persecution and hard things for standing up for these sound words, that's okay. Uh, Because you're standing up for the same thing your Lord Jesus did, and Jesus was delivered out of that, and so you will be as well. Mm -hmm. Amen. So he wraps up with a little bit of a reminder of the contentment lesson for the rich. As for those who are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Um, Apparently that was a real issue there, and of course not just there, but all places at all times. That's why these letters are so valuable to us. Timothy needed these things to help the church in Ephesus, but we all need these things. And what a blessing it is that we have these things recorded for us and preserved through the ages. So he wraps up his letter to Timothy, uh, telling him again to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Um, There's several times that Paul uses that kind of language in these letters that like, I have this incredible treasure 
And now I'm passing it on to you, Timothy. And now you pass it on to others. You guard it. You keep it safe. Don't let people twist it or mess it up. And then you pass it on to others as well. It's really cool. And then that final warning against what's falsely called knowledge, probably a reference to, to Gnosticism. Um, and then grace be with you. He wraps up his letter. And um, again, we don't know exactly when all this was written, um, but uh, he'll be, there'll be one more letter of Paul uh, where he will uh, give his final instructions to Timothy. Yeah, so Lord willing, we'll dig into Second Timothy next week. Uh, could possibly be one of the last letters that we got from Paul if our timeline's correct. But it is a, another really good letter that emphasizes the need to walk in sound doctrine and uphold it and do it to the very end. So Lord willing, we'll dig into some of those details next week. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for listening to the pod today. If you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. Uh, If you'd like to study the Bible with us online or locally, or if you're somewhere else, we'd love to connect you with people who can help you. Please reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at thecapitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies or worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.